make me sick. Sally, come back here. Sally. Open the door. No, you don't get to talk to me anymore. This is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. On this episode, Erin and Elizabeth continue their look back at father figures in the TV drama Mad Men, focusing on Sally Draper's coming of age and increasing awareness of her father's secret lives. They also discuss showrunner Matthew Weiner's own daddy issues and the scandal that will change the way you think about the show forever. Last we saw Don, he was asking Sally to be left alone. And wouldn't you know it, that's exactly what happens. He goes off in season three, lives his life, continues his philandering. And what's relevant for Sally in this season is that Betty's dad, whose name is Gene, has a stroke and so comes to the house to live with them for a while. And there's a three or four episode arc where Sally has a friend in her grandpa Gene. And then he dies pretty suddenly and she faces loss for the first time. Right after Betty's dad has died, they've had another baby. Yes, they've had another baby named after Betty's dad, Grandpa Jean. So this is baby Jean. And Sally, who was very close to Grandpa Jean, hates baby Jean. Does not want to hold that damn baby Jean. Does not want to hear it cry. Doesn't want her parents to pay attention to it. And has been having reoccurring nightmares that baby Jean is Grandpa Jean reincarnated, Mm -hmm. which makes total sense. And Don is the only one that kind of gets that and comforts her instead of Betty's reaction, which is, I just don't know what to say. I don't know why she's crying in the middle of the night. Right, yeah. Don comes home and finds Sally's Barbie doll in the bushes and brings it back upstairs and puts it in her room while she's asleep. And she wakes up and sees the doll on her, her nightstand thinking, I left that outside. What's it doing here? And has a complete freak out. Betty is so exasperated in that moment with her. She can't figure it out. That doll, by the way, is given to her as like a consolation. I've tried giving her a doll. I've tried giving her extra attention. But you really see the way that Don connects with his daughter emotionally differently than Betty. Calm down. Tell me what's going on. Grandpa Gene. He's not supposed to be here anymore. He's not. He's called Gene. He sleeps in his room. He looks just like him. And I bet when he starts talking, he's going to sound just like him too. He's a baby. That's it. And he gets her a nightlight. He gets her a nightlight. It's an easy fix. Just explain death or try to and say that it's okay to be scared. He eventually coaxes Sally into holding or at least agreeing to look at baby Jean as Don holds baby Jean. You're the younger sibling in your family. Did you witness like your dad being tender with the baby or any baby? Yeah. (laughs) My dad was tender with babies I remember, I have a really clear memory of someone at church having a baby and him pointing out to me that the baby's ears looked like little seashells. Oh my 
my god, that's then, adorable. It was like, oh, look at his little seashell ears. And I was like, what? Did your dad <laughs> actually like do any diaper changing? Oh, yeah. My dad was a very extremely involved parent. Good. I mean, my mom. My was your mom working? Yes. Yeah. She okay. worked. My mom worked for a publishing company. And my father rearranged his schedule when we were little. I think when we were really little, he worked the graveyard chef at the newsroom so that when we were getting ready for school, he was home to help us. That's progressive. Super progressive. How long were your parents married before they divorced? Almost 30 years. Holy shit. Yeah, Yeah, mine 20. They got married when they were 21, Mm -hmm. and they got divorced in 99. So yeah, it was almost 30 years. They met when they were 19. As the older sibling, when you saw your dad, do you remember when your little brothers came home? We're like, we're new babies. Like, I tried to hold my brother, or they wanted me to for a picture, and I had no interest. Totally. Because I was five at this little shit was just like, ugh, seriously, I have to share. (laughs) And there's a great picture of myself holding my brother as an infant. I just look like he shit his pants, which he probably had because he was a baby, but I was just like, and my dad was very amused by that. And it was a relatable scene. I think they get it. I suspect he did this with all of us, which was private little talks like, you know, you'll always be the only girl. You'll always be the old oldest. Maybe he said to my other brother, like, you'll always be the youngest. Right. You know, who knows? The special little, this is how you're special to me. It is important. I think there's a moment in your book that's really funny where I don't relate to it, goddammit, as the youngest (laughs) fucking older siblings out there. You think you're so great. I'm looking at you, Maddie, my older sister. But you write so humorously and vividly about your disdain for your little brothers who were very cute and including one of your brothers who's obsessed with Mickey Mouse and says yeah. says cute things about Mickey Mouse. Yeah, I'm not goofy, I'm Mickey. <laughs> like when my mom would say, stop being so goofy. Well, he was a real card. But I just love it even, you know, you wrote this book. How old were you when you wrote it? Oh, uh, so like 35. At, so at 35, <laughs> you're like, God damn it. It's like, this <laughs> the, baby. The, the simmering disdain. Yeah. But at the end of that episode with Don and baby Jean, he has Sally come over to him and she doesn't want to. And he's like, come over here. He, she's, she's scared of him still. This is your little brother. And he's only a baby. And we don't know who he is yet or who he's going to be. And that is a wonderful thing. Don gives her a speech about how Jean is just a baby and that we don't know what kind of a person Jean is going to be and that that's a beautiful thing and let's hope that he doesn't turn out like 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 me me. old man look at my life I'm like you Neil Young too I only ever wanted to be the man who loves children but from the moment they're born That baby comes out and you act proud and excited and out cigars, but you don't feel anything, especially if you had a difficult childhood. You want to love them, but you don't. The fact that you're faking that feeling makes you wonder if your own father had the same problem. And one day they get older and you see them do something and you feel that feeling you were pretending to have and it feels like your heart is going to explode 
the reality of what he's saying is essentially your heart doesn't start opening up for your children until they quote do something I don't have kids people that I'm close to in my life who do have said to me it's not something you're gonna hear a lot but typically you don't start having those real moments of connection until they're older you just don't and Don is confronting himself and his own inability to connect with himself around being a father being a man being a husband Mm -hmm. being alive the other thing that we see in season three is the cracks in the Draper marriage really starting to show and for the first time you see Betty, even though she's had maybe her suspicions here and there, truly realize that Don is having an affair and what basically leads to them getting a divorce. So now post-divorce, Don is now a single dad who lives in an apartment. Right. Sally has had it with Betty and she goes to the city. She fights her way onto the train. She lies and she takes a train into the city by herself. I think she's eight. And she basically goes to the office and won't leave. Remember the part where Don's assistant, Ms. Blankenship, dies suddenly at her desk. She does. And they have to hide it, both from Sally but from the clients. You see them, like, trying to figure out what to do with her body while, like, (laughs) the client's backs are too. And while Don... While Don's facing... Finishes a pitch. Right. A pitch meeting and ends up landing the count. There's a lot of comedy. But in the end, Don is like, Sally, you have to go home. You have to leave. There's no woman in this office that can take care of you, and I don't have time to take care of you right now. And she gets so upset, she starts running toward the receptions down this long hallway, and she wipes out. Mm-hmm. She just falls on her face and her knees and Megan one of the secretaries soon to be her stepmother in the next season she doesn't know it yet Don's next wife is one of his secretaries because he needs somebody to be a nanny basically not that he doesn't think he loves Megan with her go-go boots and her buck teeth go-go boots and her buck teeth it's over buddy Is she from Montreal? French-Canadian. When we saw this show 10 years ago, didn't like Megan and found her to be meh. But in the rewatch, I found Megan to be enormously sensitive and trying to be a good stepmother. Sensitive to the wounds of her stepchildren Mm -hmm. and what they're going through. Not that much time has gone by, but I have a totally different view of Megan watching it now. I wonder how old Megan was. She was probably in her, like, maybe 24. Yeah, I think she's supposed to be mid-20s. But that moment that she helps Sally off the floor is the kernel for Dawn of seeing how good she is with Sally because this is framed against Faye. His girlfriend at the time who is the the in-house agency psychologist. Right. And psychologists are always part of ad agency worlds because they know what the consumer needs. 
And so they're on staff. That was one of the early high-paying, high-seniority roles for women. Don's kind of at this point in his life, he's started journaling. He's trying to drink less. He starts swimming. And he starts dating this woman, Faye, the psychologist, who he really makes an effort to take the relationship seriously. He doesn't have sex with her on the first date, which is a huge win for him in the terms of like emotional maturity. He's trying not to fuck it up. She has no connection to children and she has and no she connection says that. and she says to him like I chose to have a career instead of children and and he's like it's fine it's fine but it's, but not, it's fine not fine because within just a few episodes he's and by the next season opener he is married to right Faye has been dismissed and Megan has been promoted promoted <laughs> But that episode where she falls, Beautiful Girls, is again a moment of good parenting on Dawn's part framed against Betty's where when Don calls Betty and is like, do you realize that Sally's taking the train here? She's like, I can't come get her till tomorrow, so enjoy Don. And like saying it out loud now, I'm like, maybe Betty's fucking tired of being stuck at home and she's like, you know what? You take her for a couple nights. I've had it with her. You understand her frustration in that moment. And that's what divorce is. It's figuring out the distribution of labor. Yeah, it's your turn, which is frankly a big part of parenting. Chauncey was a living thing. Yeah, it is your turn, Don. Like, you, quote, deal with... You made your bed, now lie in it and take care <laughs> of it. But... I think the sad part is that then you see Sally really resisting wanting to go home and saying, I hate it there. She feels trapped. So when she does get to spend the night at her dad's place, at his apartment at the time, when he's a a swinging bachelor. Swinging dick. Whitman. Secretly. He's drinking a lot, more even than one thought possible. And he was. He's trying right now to be a better guy. But Sally intuits his drinking and how important alcohol is in his happiness. Mm -hmm. So there's an amazing scene where he wakes up and she has made him French toast. And instead of Mrs. Butterworth's, it turns out to be rum. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he kind of chastises her and he's like, what is this? And she's like, no, her Sally lists. This is Butterworth. And he says, it's rum. Learn how to read labels. He's like, this actually tastes pretty good, honey. It's this moment of connection. And then she asks Don to put off his work for the day. And he takes her to the zoo. They go to the zoo together. So it's post-divorce. Don is attempting to be a good dad to his kids and to Sally post-divorce. It's just a quick little moment in an episode called Hands and Knees. But he gets Sally's Beatles tickets. Yes. Any dad who gets his kid concert tickets, Beatles anything, is a thoughtful dad. And her reaction is spot on. She actually has Beatlemania and starts screaming. And even Betty is impressed. And he's always such a thoughtful gift giver. One of the things that struck me is that Sally's wardrobe throughout the series is extremely consistent. At some point, somebody, and I think we assume that it's Don, gives her a Tiffany necklace with her initials. It's a classic, the monogram SBD. Sally Beth Draper, which she caresses as Don is on the other side of that door in a scene that we'll talk about soon when he betrays her with his humanity. (laughs) Yeah, that's such a good point about that necklace. You see it, the episode 
before the Beatles episode is when she makes him French toast with rum. That's before and the Beatles tickets? It's one episode before. In that episode, he puts her to bed and she has her little necklace on. And he's wearing one of his t-shirts as a nightgown. Which everyone, we've, you know, remembers. We've, we've all, all been the there. t-shirt nightgown. I still have my dad's t-shirts. I have them. I can't go there quite yet. They're yeah. still in a box. There's also the act of wearing a t-shirt to bed, which I do all the time as pajamas. But you, you wear your dad's shirts growing up as a little girl, and they're huge on you. But then when you become older and you sleep over at men's houses, they're you like, do you t-shirts. want a t-shirt? And then you're also in their t-shirt, and it's this no. weird moment of. You feel, I feel like a little kid. Yeah. And you're, because you're swimming in their t-shirts. Their t-shirts cover your entire buttocks. (laughs) (laughs) Going off of what you just mentioned about her necklace and how they dress Sally and they do such a good job of using clothes with Sally, there's the episode at the the Codfish Codfish Ball, Ball. which we famously remember as the episode where she walks in on Roger getting a blowjob. However, there's a lot in this episode about how she dresses and Dawn's sort of reaction to her. Don is being honored by the American Cancer Society for an ad campaign that he has uh, orchestrated. So it's one of those like, we're all going to the ball at the Hilton. And Sally gets to go as his date. She's Roger's date. Oh, sorry. She's Roger's date? So Megan's parents come to town and her father, who's Mm -hmm. a Marxist scholar. Sure. And her, as one is, and a French mother, her French mother who's annoyed by her father. He's a struggling academic who can't get anything published and is at the end of his career and also having an affair with a grad student. And they're fighting a lot. They decide that they're all going to go to this ball and they take Sally with them as like a treat for her to just go. Yeah, and Megan takes her shopping and and it's the mid-60s and she buys her these incredible go-go boots. And... Sally has her sparkly silver dress on and her go-go boots and her dad sees her for the first time and he says, (gasps) Take off the makeup and the boots. What? No. Or you can stay home. Fine. Take those off. Referring to her lip gloss and her uh, go-go boots, I think we've both been there. He's wanting to preserve her childhood a little bit longer. She's probably like 11-ish. It's still super part of our culture, which is like how a dad is to his daughter and protecting their girlhood. It shows later that she does wear those go-go boots again to the planetarium. Nice. So she plays the role of an 11-year-old girl. And she is the quote-unquote date of Roger that night, who she accidentally walks in on receiving a blowjob from her Mm step-grandmother, basically. And she sees how vile and horrible men are and how adults lie. But she also learns to hang and cover. At one point, Roger is sitting next to her and he's and he treats her like the adult that she deserves to be treated as. And she's like, go get him, tiger. Yeah. <laughs> Something clicks for her and then she's never the same again. It's yeah. like, despite the fact that dad, I took the go-go boots off, I rub the stain of seeing your colleague being blown by your right. mother-in-law. Your 
colleague Sorry. who's kind of I'm like scandalized. an uncle figure to me who I've known all my life. I'm walking in on him. It's traumatizing and she comes back to the table. Everyone has those memories of the first time they walk in on someone having sex or hearing someone having sex or, or seeing dad. porn or seeing their dad naked. Seeing their dad naked, seeing something that sexualized an authority figure or their parents. Been there. Which leads into truly the most important, I think, turning point for the characters when Sally in season six or seven Mm -hmm. walks in on her father having an affair with a neighbor woman. And she has also gone through an experience where she is babysitting at Don and Megan's fancy Park Avenue apartment for her two younger brothers. There's no adult present. And she says she's 14 when she calls 911, but she's really not 14. She's like 12 or 13. She's babysitting and an elderly woman comes to the house to rob it impersonating Don's grandmother. As a viewer, you're like, well, I could see the reality of a black elderly or middle-aged woman being like, I raised raised your daddy and that that's an an easy thing to understand or believe at that time because so many people were raised by women of color and maids and nannies. The the domestic laborers that actually raised generations of people. The point for Sally is that holy shit, I don't know anything about my father. The parts that I do know are, have been proven to be lies. He's, right. he's admitted to me that he sometimes lies about his past. I'm so embarrassed. I acted like a stupid little kid. No, you didn't. And I'm sure she's fooled plenty of adults, too. She said she knew you. I asked her everything I know, and she had an answer for everything. Then I realized I don't know anything about you. You did everything right. Try and forget about it. Okay. Bye. Sally, I left the door open. It was my fault. Her instinct tells her, like, this is a con. But she's also realizing that her dad is a con artist in this same way. Everything is fine. Nobody is hurt. She's just mentally ill. Right. The police come. And at the end of the episode, when when Sally is talking to her dad and she says, I'm so sorry that I... I'm such a stupid little kid. I believed what she says. It's not your fault. I'm the one that left the door open. Literally, he didn't lock the door because he hasn't been thinking about being a parent at all. But he also left the door open metaphorically for all to be revealed, which it soon will be. Mm -hmm. Because this Park Avenue apartment is hiding a lot of secrets. Simultaneously at this time, he's starting to have an affair with their neighbor, Sylvia. Sylvia. Another married mom. And he's really playing with fire because this woman lives in the apartment building. His alcoholism is in full-blown mode, soiling himself at the office. He's missing things. And the thing that's interesting about the door being open thing is that before this is the episode, The Suitcase, where 
it's really revealed how dependent he is on alcohol, how truly unmanageable his life has become, and also him facing his past, really revealing himself to Peggy. He explains to her what his real upbringing was like in so many words. He doesn't name names, but he says his father died from getting kicked in the head by a horse, which is true. Um, Dick Whitman's father did die that way. But at the end of that episode, the only reason I bring it up, besides to contextualize his drinking, he vomits in that episode. He gets really fucked up in front of Peggy. He lets Peggy see it happen. At the very, very end, she says, do you want the door closed or open? And Open or closed? Open. I feel like I'm a, a sophomore in college again. Like, mirrors and doors are mirrors important and parts doors of Mirrors and albatrosses <laughs> as necklaces. Oh, my. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Matt Weiner. Thank you, Matt Weiner, but for also... For keeping it straightforward. For real. And from then on, nothing is quite the same. Because he cannot hide because... He's fucking the neighbor, <laughs> Sylvia. <laughs> this episode shows Sylvia going to Don and asking Don to help her son, who's now been called to Vietnam to get out of it and he calls in some favors at the office and gets him a bogus like something with he makes it so this happened to somebody i know of this generation Mm -hmm. he called in a favor and you can make it so you don't get drafted the son of the woman that he's having an affair with who sally comes home she had a crush on him yeah with a friend who's like who's your your babe neighbor his name is mitchell and sally's she doesn't know that don's having an affair with sylvia and her friend reveals to her when they're in a taxi that she's written a note to Mitchell to tell Mitchell that Sally's in love and leaves it under his door. And Sally's so like, what the Sally, fuck? Yeah. Sally like tries to break in or does break into Sylvia's house. She gets the keys. She goes in. She, she lets sees herself in. Don and Sylvia doing it. Yeah, it is not. There's nothing ambiguous about it. They're having sex and she sees them having sex. And then Sylvia and Don see her seeing them and it is as uncomfortable as you think. It's horrifying. And then everybody tries to pretend it didn't happen because wouldn't you know it, Don and Megan and Sally and her friend are having like a family dinner just hours later. Right. So And Sylvia's husband and Sylvia's son come over to thank Don for his calling in that favor. You've saved our family. And after they leave, Sally stands up and screams at Don. You make me sick. Sally, come back here. And she runs to her room with no explanation. And Don runs after her and she locks him out. And he is behind the door as she is behind the door. Sally. Open the door. No, you don't get to talk to me anymore. Sally. Sally, open the door. I need to talk to you. I know you think you saw something. I was comforting Mrs. Rosen. She was very upset. It's very complicated. Sally, can you hear me? Yes. Did you hear what I said? Okay. 
it's an incredibly sad and touching scene that triggers you because you did find your father having an affair yeah, in your house. I did. What triggers me specifically is that what triggers me specifically is going to be my mantra of 2020. <laughs> I remember crying when it aired and it's still it's a raw wound and I really relate to it because my sister and I as teenagers discovered that my father was having an affair and some of the language that Don uses in that scene is identical to things that my father said to me including I know you think you saw something Mm. but I was comforting this woman. I was comforting I was comforting her with my tech. Yeah. We didn't walk into any brazen. It wasn't as traumatic as that. It wasn't coitus, but it was a left open email on a family computer in the dawn of the internet. And he had left open some exchanges with a woman that he was having an affair with, who was a coworker of his, who we knew. So it was sort of similar in that, like, in the Sylvia Dawn dynamic, this was someone that my mother knew her. (gasps) Her husband and her would come over for dinner. Really? She was really close with my dad quote unquote did your mother know no she didn't know she found out by my father reading my diary your diary which was very upsetting and I think probably did the most damage to our relationship out of any other acts I had started journaling and I was writing about as one does even Don Draper journals on Mad Men I was writing about being so upset that we knew that he was having an affair and he knew that my sister and I were really on to him he could sense it we wanted nothing to do with him and it's we were acting how Sally starts acting after she has this discovery with Sylvia her I mean I was 13 same with Sally like what's the worst age a girl could be to discover her father's yeah, bar mitzvah, her bar mitzvah like, so you got your period found out your dad was a liar totally a fucking his friend from and work. then their marriage exploded he came into my room one day and found me writing in my diary and I screamed at him like a classic like get, get out, out of get out of and in that instance, it didn't even actually have anything to do with the affair. It was that we had to have a swim party. Thanks, eighth grade teachers from Madison Number 1 Elementary School, 1997, Phoenix, <laughs> thinking, how do we celebrate our graduating class? We have a swim party in middle school when <laughs> girls and boys, but girls' bodies, you either have like a full D cup or you're like... Just <laughs> flat as a board. Same, it's like you can either pass as like 35 or 8. So really hating my body. And I think we had just gone to try on bathing suits for the party and was having a little meltdown. But it was this weird moment where he walked into my room and I screamed at him to leave and he saw me writing in the diary and I made a mental note to maybe change up my hiding spots for it. Didn't so, you bury your journal in the yard? Yes, <laughs> what do you do when you're 14 and your whole world is dictated by music videos and soap opera scenes? Mm-hmm. You go outside in your backyard and you bury that diary. I mean, how metaphorical. Like, then as an adult, I learned how to yeah. bury my feelings. He walked into my room and he saw the diary. And then I kind of forgot about it. And then the next day, my sister and I were out. My sister had her license. Both my parents were very generous about letting us drive their cars. We had gone to a record store. And the deal was that, yes, we could borrow his car, but that we needed to check in. And we called and he said, I need you to come home right now. And I need you to tell your sister that I love her a lot. 
He told my sister that, and my sister dictated this back to me, and and I said to her, he read my diary. (gasps) I just knew. We just both knew what we were walking into, and he knew. I mean, in a way, it's still this weird. Then we went home. He had it out. It was very a guest who's on this season, Jake Jackson. His mother has his porn sitting out to confront him in this very dramatic way. We came home, and my father had my diary (gasps) sitting out. We had this sort of family meeting which with my mother, which family meetings were things that happened on TV shows. If we discussed something as a family, it happened naturally at the dinner table or whatever. But it was this very sort of like, we're having a meeting moment. And he was very similar to Don and Sally in that moment of, I think you're confused. You found some emails where I was telling my friend who was feeling not so good about herself that she's attractive. Was your mother learning this all for the first time? Yes. And I used to be really upset about how it was handled, which was that basically my mother said, okay, sounds good. This didn't happen. Did your mother really believe him? I think she wanted to. You know, it's difficult. If my mother was here right now, she would say, I just couldn't face what was happening. I just couldn't accept it. And it's a lot. And I wanted to believe him. And and why the show resonates with me so much is because his alcoholism was blossoming at the time and it was wrapped together. But it must have spearheaded the divorce, the event divorce. He stayed in the house for another year. That was the longest year of my life. As a teen, it it just was awful. I didn't want to be in the house. After the scene where Don talks to Sally through the door, that is so fucking heartbreaking where in so many words Denial. he said you you misunderstood this connection i have Gaslighting. with yes i exactly and she says okay and she's disgusted because it has to do with sex and the next episode she goes to boarding school suddenly out of nowhere and in season seven the final season of the show Sally, in episode two, which is called A Day's Work, she goes to Don's office and finds out that he is not there because he has been given a forced leave of absence for, quote, unquote, shitting the bed during the Hershey meeting. (laughs) How do you shit the bed in there? I don't care. Is any of that true? Yes. He hemorrhaged his childhood. That's right. Dick Whitman memories of his childhood. It's abuse and neglect to the Hershey's Inc. CEO and the marketing team. <laughs> the Hershey squirt. He had a Hershey squirt where he he has a breakdown and he tells the truth. I'm sorry. I have to say this. I don't know if I'll ever see you again. What? I was an orphan. I grew up in Pennsylvania in a whorehouse. I read about Milton Hershey and his school in Coronet Magazine or some other crap the girls left by the toilet. And I read that some orphans had a different life there. I could picture it. I dreamt of it. Of being wanted. Because the woman who was forced to raise me would look at me every day like she hoped I would disappear. Closest I got to feeling wanted was from a girl who made me go through her John's pockets while they screwed. If I collected more than a dollar, she'd buy me a Hershey bar. And I would eat it alone in my room with the great ceremony, feeling like a normal kid. It said sweet on the package. 
was the only sweet thing in my life. He's he has to go on a forced sabbatical, and so he's been lying low. And his assistant Dawn has been keeping up appearances for him, but he does not realize that Sally has gone to the office to visit him. Discovered that he's no longer there, so she calls him on it. And at first, he tries to lie, and she's just like, they go for an infamous driving scene. So I find your story a little suspicious. My story? There's some man in your office. We're not talking about me. Did you lose your job? Why were you in the city? I want to know this minute. I don't have to tell you anything. Just stop the car. I'm talking to you. You're yelling at me. Why would you just let me lie to you like that? Because it's more embarrassing for me to catch you in a lie than it is for you to be lying. So you just laid in wait, like your mother. Do you know how hard it was for me to go to your apartment? I could have run into that woman. I could be in the elevator. She could get in, and I have to stand there, smiling, wanting to vomit while I smell her hairspray. It's this really uncomfortable, sad scene where she's talking to him about lying and his penchant for lying, and she calls him out. I mean, Betty, around the time that they get divorced, she starts realizing what's happening with Don's infidelity. She draws a line in the sand and she leaves him. She ultimately is the one that ends their relationship. But Sally reads Don in the car kind of in a way that you never get from Betty. Betty definitely has moments with him where she explodes in anger, but hearing it mirrored in Sally is really powerful because she's only 14. Happy Valentine's Day. I love you. It's this moment that I think you know as the like viewer that Sally's really grown up. Sally fucking gets it, and she sees how her dad is limited and... And the episode ends with her saying, after all of this confrontation, happy Valentine's Day. I love you. We can't show video clearly, but the look on his face is so wounded and accepted at the same time. He's stricken. I think he's been wanting to hear I love you from her. Or anyone. He is at sea. I think they both realize that she's in charge of the relationship, at least at that moment. And he's forgotten that it's Valentine's Day at all. And also her screaming at him in the car about smelling her hairspray and wanting to vomit, repulsed by him. But the episode before this, Sally starts acting out and Dawn is called in the middle of the night to go pick her up because she's suspended. I just got off the phone with Miss Porters. Sally's been suspended. What did she do? She bought beer using the name Beth Francis with a false ID she'd made. Kids do things, Betty. At least they didn't kick her out. Henry's already in Albany. I'm supposed to join him tomorrow. I know you're picking the boys up Thanksgiving Day, but could you go get her tomorrow? I don't want to have this conversation with my mother-in-law. I can't, Betty. I have a big meeting. She was drunk. And she got other girls drunk. I've done everything I can think to do, everything my own mother did. The good is not beating the bad. She obviously needs more than I can give her. Bertie, this isn't your fault. She's from a broken home. I think it's a really poignant moment because it's also like she's saying out loud what he's scared of too, which is our children will inherit the bad. I'm the bad, Betty's the good, which of course is questionable. (laughs) 
like on the entire series because no one is the good and the bad and like that's the whole point of the show is that people are complicated i think he kind of listens to her in that moment worried that she might be right and he goes and he gets sally and then it ends with this episode where he confesses to these ad executives and the entire room is just reeling with what the fuck did you one this is the first time roger and co are hearing this information two that he's revealing it in front of these extremely important clients it ends with him taking his kids back to his childhood home and saying this is where I grew up and it's kind of a ghetto in rural Pennsylvania. This is a bad neighborhood. Come on. This is where I grew up. It's a it's a dilapidated Victorian house that's in a quote, as Bobby says, bad neighborhood. It's clearly a poor neighborhood. And Bobby and Jean are kind of just like, what? Question mark. Sally and, and Don exchange a knowing look of acceptance that this is the new truth and mm-hmm. this is the new reality. We don't see a ton of Sally and Don together until the very last episode, which we should talk about, mm-hmm. of the entire series. The major scene in that episode is when Sally calls Don from boarding school. He's on a walkabout where he's driving cross-country while he's on sabbatical to go to a self-improvement goop lab-esque workshop. Where it's, you- it's suggested that it's the Esalen Baths outside of Monterey, California. California. So like super hippy dippy. It's 1969. There's a reference Meditation. to Charles Manson yeah. being in the area. There's yoga. There's group therapy. Sally calls him with some bad news and he has to listen to her. He's not in control of this conversation. He is the child. She is the grown up. She says, I have news. Mom is dying. Mm-hmm. Your ex-wife, Betty, The mother of your three children has six months to live. It's on Sally to tell her father, you are not going to have custody of us. It's going to be Betty's brother. brother. And Don is stricken and calls his ex-wife. I'm their father. I need to have custody of them. And Betty says, but I want to keep things consistent while I'm gone. And you not being here is part of that. Francis Residence. I have a person-to-person call for Betty Francis from Donald Draper. This is she, I'll accept. Hello, Don? Don't you want the boys? No. You know I talk to Sally, don't you? Yes, of course. I'm coming home. You are definitely not! I want to be there. The kids need me. I don't want to upset them. It's my business. Didn't even want her to know. No one could keep their mouth shut. I don't want you to worry about them. They're going to come live with me. You don't even have to ask. I wasn't going to. Please don't let your pride interfere with my wishes. I'm their father. What they really need is a woman in their life, a regular family. I'm living with my brother and Judy's in their best interests. You don't have the right to decide. What am I supposed to do? This way you see them exactly as much as you do now. On weekends and... Oh, wait, Don. When was the last time you saw them? Betty, I I didn't know. Don, honey, I 
I appreciate your intentions, I really do. But I'm not going to waste the rest of my time arguing about this. I want to keep things as normal as possible. And you not being here is part of that. Birdie. I know. I have to go. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Once there's no more mom, there's no more dad. She says they need a woman in their life. And there's no more Megan, because now they're on their way to divorce. Mm-hmm. And Megan was never really a mother figure. She was just... She was more of a cool friend. A glorified secretary. You not being here as part of that is so sad. He calls Peggy back at the agency because he's stricken with the idea that there's never any closure. He tries to reconcile within a group therapy environment that you cannot run away from your past Mm -hmm. and the truth of who you are. His whole abiding theme is that if you put enough distance between yourself physically and the past and your memory, if you bury it, you can run away. Mm -hmm. You can get away with it. It will shock you how much this didn't happen, (laughs) as he says in earlier seasons. A speech he gives to Peggy. He calls Peggy to apologize for his absence emotionally, physically, to say goodbye. Look, I know you get sick of things and you run, but you can come home. Where? McCann will take you back in a second. Apparently it's happened before. Don't you want to work on coke? I can't. I can't get out of here. Don, come home. Messed everything up. I'm not the man you think I am. Don, listen to me. What did you ever do that was so bad? I broke all my vows. Scandalized my child another man's name and made nothing of it. That's not true. I only called because I realized I never said goodbye to you. Ugh. I know, but it ends with Don meditating at Esalen or an Esalen-esque place on a cliff. And they project forward a few months in time into 1970 with a real commercial for Coca-Cola. And Coca-Cola, by the way, is a current client of Sterling Draper, Draper Cooper Price. The or, implication yeah. being that Don turns his self-actualization into capitalist gold by taking the scene of his own breakdown and then learning to come full circle for empathy with himself, connecting with his fellow men and women, whether they be white, black, brown, yellow. Right, know, this is the, the vibe of the commercial. The 70s. Right. So you you definitely get the message that he is going to survive at least this year, commodify this experience and right. move on. Enlightenment via capitalism. The whole self-care movement echoes, echoes, echoes. Don finds transcendence through right. advertising right. with the Coke commercial. It's fascinating that 50 years after the 
I'd like to teach the world to sing woke coke ad of 1970. We can easily imagine a white, middle-aged, twice-divorced father of three going to take a woke retreat and coming back with 2017's doomed Pepsi ad instead, the one starring Kendall Jenner which was corporate America trying and failing to depoliticize Black Lives Matter protests even three years ago. And now, three years on, we are seeing what happens when corporations are tasked with this moral reckoning of not just reflecting a more inclusive world in their ads, but in their actual corporate ranks. Really, you see a lot of companies exploiting the wokeification, the girl bossification of feminism, the wokeification of not being homophobic or misogynistic or racist. You see it everywhere. You see it with Listerine having a float in the pride parade down to all of the ways that we saw companies squirm and attempt to express their remorse and solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement in a way that was graceless because it's not real. I feel like Don's Coke commercial is a good first example of using true social justice to be the gasoline in the tank of whatever it is you're selling, whether it's an ad or a campaign of some sort. But I don't think that things like the Pepsi Kendall Jenner commercial would have ever seen the light of day if you had more diversity and more representation at an executive level. And But the bottom line is there's still a bottom line. They're still having to make money off of products and using social justice to fuel that is just always going to ring hollow. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how we move forward culturally as consumers after 2020. It's also important to talk about creator, showrunner, writer, Matthew Weiner. In 2017, Matt Weiner is incredibly accused of sexual harassment in the Mad Men writer's room by Cater Gordon, who was a young protege, and she starts out as a writer's assistant in the room and then works her way up to writing the episode that ends up winning an Emmy for Best Screenplay. Um, only one of us is allowed to speak, so I'm going to speak for both of us. And I'm going to hold it. <laughs> um, uh, we would like to thank our parents and our families. Cater uh, uh, would like to thank her fiancé, Saleo, and the lady who gave her a kidney. And I would like to thank my wife, Linda, who is uh, my critic and my advisor and my muse. I would like to thank my kids, uh, Martin, Charlie, Arlo, and Ellis. I hope someone figured out how to take this. And um, I just wanted to say uh, to the people, uh, we, have, we work with these people at AMC and Lionsgate, and I may be the only person in this room on some level who has complete creative freedom. And I have to thank them for that, because that's why the show is the way it is. We have an amazing cast, we have an amazing crew, and um, when you get something like this, it makes writing look fun. But it's not. <laughs> um, and just one last thing about writers, and for anybody out there, I grew up watching this show, and I loved seeing the writers on the show, and I just want to say, if you're out there, just hang in there and remember that when you look down the row at that guy at Starbucks with the computer, it's probably one of us. You can see that Matt Weiner will not let this writer act 
actually accept the award. He does all the talking, and then he rewards her for this Emmy-winning episode by firing her and a slew of other writers before the next season. And she comes out in 2017 at the height of the Times Up movement of anti-sexual harassment and discrimination in the Hollywood workplace to say, Matt Weiner sexually harassed me, that's why I left, and that's why I'm no longer working as a writer in Hollywood. And in fact, I've started a nonprofit organization for people who've been sexually harassed in the workplace. Cater Gordon has said to people who perhaps don't believe her side of the story that I think the claim of sexual harassment is that they were in the writer's room. And he says something to the effect of, you owe it to me to let me see you naked. What? Now that we've been through this experience together. It's worth noting that the Mad Men writer's room was reportedly somewhat diverse by TV standards. Of a staff of 10 to 12 writers every year, five of them were always women, which is extremely rare. There's usually one or zero women in the room. The writers ranged in age from their 20s to their 80s. They always tried to have somebody who was alive during the 60s and worked in advertising there as a consultant. And the writers were described as white and Asian. I thought it was interesting that Weiner's co-executive producer and head writer, Semi Chalice, gave an interview where she discussed how the writer's room worked. It's all about Matt Weiner, but he did encourage his writers to draw from their own experiences, and then they would bring those ideas or pages to him, and he would basically say yay or nay. Here's the quote from the Cornell Daily Sun. In the following days, writers would pitch their ideas directly to Weiner, who would sometimes return a few days later and pitch the very same ideas he had previously dismissed. How many times have we been there in our careers? So what does he do post-Mad Men? He writes a novel, and it is called Heather the Totality. Mm. Coincidentally, the plot is a father murders a man he suspects wants to rape his daughter, which a reviewer at Vox, Constance Grady, calls bad. <laughs> it's a bad novel. Mm. Quote, incapable of imagining her as anything besides an object upon whom men might prove their masculinity. Matt Weiner said about his own novel, The story comes from me witnessing a young girl walking into a building and a construction worker seeing and ogling her, he says, and me thinking, what if her dad had seen that? Constance Grady at Vox says, It's worth considering that Weiner writes a lot about men who treat women as prostitutes. Don has a Madonna whore complex, which is a running theme in the series, and his alleged statement to Gordon that you owe it to me to let me see you naked would suggest that a belief that women's beauty, or more directly, women's bodies, are a currency, and that after having bought a woman's favor with professional mentorship, he is owed access to her body. To which I say, writer, heal thyself. <laughs> Matt Weiner has mommy issues, daddy issues, and all the issues that 
fallible men have. And it's very interesting, as Cater Gordon would say, do you really think that the mind that conceived of Pete Campbell and Don Draper and Roger Sterling isn't capable of objectifying women in the same way? It's a really good question. Mad Men also did a great job in the context of the Emmy speech where he wouldn't let Cater Gordon say anything of showing women as rich characters. The the women that were in the world of Mad Men were white, middle class, upper class, rich, wealthy women. But the series made it a point to show the interior lives of women being complicated. The interior lives of women being complicated 60 years ago. 60 years ago. (laughs) But even, even saying that out loud, I'm like, did he though? Like for a show that's about men and advertising executive men in the 60s, I wonder if the reason why the female characters were so well done was not because of Matthew Weiner, but because of the women helping him write the show. A to the fucking men, sister. And one wonders if the reason why when he finally branched out on his own and didn't have a team of writers who were either women or queer or people who weren't writing from the perspective of a white straight man, that he came back with a completely bizarrely tone-deaf novel about a father wanting to avenge the rape of his daughter. By a low-class construction worker. But the novel didn't sell, so we're not here to talk about failed books. <laughs> boom, Especially boom, boom. mine. And what happened afterwards? What happened? He what got happened? divorced after 30 years of marriage. He's a father himself. The Romanovs, not a strong presence on Amazon. And we'll see what he does next. But whatever he does next, we thank him for his dysfunction. For giving us mad men. For giving so many actors the roles of a lifetime. I think the ironic through line is that Don is a man struggling to face himself. And what we've heard from some of the writers is that Matt Weiner is a man who can't see himself in the mirror, which is the definition of a narcissist. The ultimate example of a powerful man unwilling to share his seat at the table. So the show has been off the air for five years The show ends in 1970. That means 50 years have gone by since the world of Mad Men ended. And yet we see such little progress in how we live as a society now. I mean, we're still seeing brands fumbling with how to handle Black Lives Matter, with how to handle COVID. It's been fascinatingly terrible corporate structures and how totally fucked up they are, how whitewashed they are, or just white-led they are, and how misogynistic they continue to be. And we're, we're seeing that really unfold with companies being called out for still having a huge glass ceiling over women and being really not that diverse. Hollywood is notably sexist and racist as well. But what we're going to need to do to actually have any sort of true reckoning in corporate America, really what the work of allyship is in fighting this bullshit is using your power to amplify the voices of people who aren't heard otherwise. So it's going to require a lot of people in power to open the fucking door and then shut up and get out of the way so that other people who haven't gotten to tell their stories, who haven't gotten to share their experiences, 
in the world that are so real, it will shock you how much they did happen, can tell them. I'd like to buy the world a Coke and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. Thanks for listening. Tell Me About Your Father was created by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. For more information, visit tellmeaboutyourfather.com. Follow us on Twitter at TMAYF Podcast and on Instagram at tellmeaboutyourfather. Call our hotline at 888 318 DADS 24 hours a day and tell us about your father. That's 888 318 DADS. This podcast was inspired by Aaron's memoir, Don't Let Me Down, which is available where all good books are sold. Episodes were edited by Chris Gellis and Emma Donoher. Our logo was designed by Cicero de Guzman and illustrated by Richard Verges. Special thanks to Betsy Lerner, Anne Thompson, Paige Orvis, and Helen Belgum. 